We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to the show, my final show of the month. I'll be on vacation on a beach by Lake Michigan next week. So uh, I will be away. Bobby Hensley is here today. My wedding anniversary is August 7th, you know. So my wife and I got married about eight years before, you know, I found out what it means to have a wedding anniversary in the first week of August, which, you know, like if you cover a football team like Notre Dame and training camp is starting, you know, you know what I'm talking about. You know what the subject is going to be coming up here in a little bit. So, uh, you know, there's well, pretty congratulations. much congratulations. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks. So I'm that, surprised I mean, she put up with you that long too. It's a couple of weeks away, but you know, again, we've got to celebrate, you know, at the end of July before all that stuff comes around and who knows? I mean, we do have the training camp schedule and I'm looking and actually, our anniversary is on a Sunday this year, but I, you know, it's like you don't go out on Sunday night, you know, kind of thing. You know, you can. I mean, you can make it your own holiday. But yeah, that's right. He is Bobby Hensley. I am Sean Styers. For all you, uh, all of our YouTubers, we are. Uh, you know, I, I hope that you're happy because we actually started closer to six o'clock tonight as opposed to six o five, six o six. We got it going. Got Anytime it going I show up tonight. on time is a good day for everyone. That's right. And I mean, you know, if people knew the backstory with that, I mean, there've been there've been some times, there've been some times, but you know, we're we're uh we're mid-July baseball all-star break and second half of the season actually getting started today, you know, NFL training camp started all that, but we we're, we're coming out of, you know, yesterday was pretty much considered the deadest sports day of the year with Major League Baseball, you know, the 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 day after the all-star break, but the ESPYs were last night, Bobby. Did you watch any of the ESPYs? No, no, I, I have, I have a hard time with the ESPYs in general. I know it's an award show. I don't like award shows in general because I don't care who's voting on stuff. Like when it comes to movies, I like the movies. I like if it wins an Oscar, if it doesn't, who cares? Yeah. Um, same thing with music. I like the music. I like, does it win an award or win a Grammy? I don't care. Same thing with sports. Did I enjoy this game? Did my team play well? I don't care if, Somebody votes on it. The only thing that's kind of cool about the ESPYs is you get um, kind of a year in review of what's happened in sports, stuff you might have forgotten about. That's the only part that's worth any 
point of watching. Other than that, we've already watched the games. Why revisit? You're probably right about that. Um, had a question. What year for my anniversary? 1993. So this is year 29. She has put up with me. One more. We hit 30. We've got to do something big next year, but we'll get to that. That means you know, it'll be a, go ahead. the 30th anniversary of Notre Dame beating Florida State next year then. That's true. That's true. I can tell you exactly where I was when I watched that game. I can tell you exactly where I was the next week when I watched when, the Boston when College. Glenn Foley and Boston College, Tom Coughlin. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah, you know, I've never been into the SBs either, you know, but like you said you don't like award shows. I grew up, you know, like pretty much watching the Oscars and Emmys all the time because I grew up and there were we didn't have cable in our house. Let's put it that way. You know, so you had three channels on TV and that's what was on. So I kind of got into it, you know, being competitive and all that, you know, like I, maybe the, you know, sometimes, well, I'll just say, I think the best (laughs) part of most award shows is the opening monologue. You know, that's what I like about the award shows, you know, like, especially, you know, you get a good comedian, like when Billy Crystal used to host some of the stuff, Steve Martin, you know, whoever, they happen to be, you know, because they always work in like the little digs and the jabs, you know, at, at the nominees or whoever happens to be in the crowd there and that kind of thing. But it's kind of struck me that like when you think about the athletes, they just um, they don't react the same as the actors, you know, at those award shows, <laughs> you know, like when you see the look on their faces, you know, maybe it's because the actors are sort of trained you know, it's like, you know, they, right. they fake it well for the most part. Of course, unless you're Will Smith and, you know, like he initially faked it well. And then, you know, when he actually, you know, when, when he was on camera and then they cut away back to Chris Rock. And the next thing you know, well, he got that look from Jada in between. You know? So it's like he thinks he's Mike Tyson after Good. that. But that's it, it just again, like, I don't know why we need to give awards to sports people when their job is to go out and compete you know they shouldn't need an award for like best play of the year best team of the year i guess the sp you know they they put it on every year so somebody must still be watching it so it's a mix right because like you said that will smith slap how many moments of all those award shows you've watched come right away in your mind not many yeah like you watch it in the moment and it's cool to see, but like even like especially the Oscars, like I'd rather just watch a movie than watch an award show about movies. Yeah. So and then the sports one is really unique because their championship, that means you're the best team. Do you need another award for it? Obviously, exactly. the big thing about the ESPYs, it gives you content to watch sports wise on a day that you said is the most dead day in sports. That's all it really is. But the way that for me, one day a year without sports, I'm okay well, with it. You know, they moved it as well because, like, the SPs used to be – I think they were doing it, like, in the spring or winter for a while when they first kicked it off. And, and, and you know, it's it's evolved. And, you know, you're right. It's like you put it on TV, you know, when, when there's nothing else going on, you might as well. As Salty Virginia Peanut says, for the actors, usually means a big payday for the next several movies as well. Great point. You know, like, yeah, the, act, the athletes aren't necessarily getting a pay raise because they got an SP. It, Sky Shark. Norm McDonald's monologue is worth watching. I have gone back and watched Norm. You know, Rest and in peace, like yeah. you talk about cringy, you know, because again, you know, especially that was like twenty plus years ago when Norm McDonald was doing that. He was taking some shots out there, and again, like the actors or the 
athletes weren't necessarily appreciative of all the shots that Norm was throwing at him. So, no, there's always a couple moments that are cool to see some of the athletes with personality or whatever. But I just think, by and large, it's not like must see TV. It's almost yeah. like a reminds me of Saturday Night Live. If there's anything cool that happens from an award show, you'll see a clip of it the next day. Yeah. It's not worth watching three and a half hours to see if there's one thing that's funny or that makes you laugh because you'll see it tomorrow. That's right. All right. Friendly request as always. Please give us a like, subscribe, rate, follow, comment. All that good stuff helps out the Irish Breakdown channels very greatly. Uh, we actually have a comment from YouTube this week that we're going to get to in a little bit. We got a lot of different topics. I don't, I don't know what you think about our list of topics today, Bobby, but I'm ready to roll. How about you? I'm ready. I'm just going to follow your lead. You start it, and then we'll talk. All right. Hot take time. Hot take <laughs> time. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Bobby, do you watch any of the, uh, of the, uh, the hot takers on TV, speaking of what you watch or don't watch? I have a hard time with that as well. I, if I'm really bored, I'll leave it on in the background. But by and large, I don't need someone else's opinion. You watch sports. All of our commenters watch sports. They That's already right. have their thoughts. It's sometimes I like hearing about what, why they think that way. Maybe I can understand the other side or soften my thoughts. But I, our, we already all have our thoughts. So I don't understand the big alert of watching people, except for during the day on like the big networks. It's really cheap television to produce. It's yeah. unique content. But I think, like I said, everybody in our comment section has opinions. We all have them. So I don't need somebody else's that it's not, again, must-see television. I don't religiously watch. Yeah, I stay away from it as well. You know, like I watch Good Morning Football, NFL Network every morning. You know, that's not hot takes. It's basically it's a, little, yeah, it's you know, a, it's a football talk show. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot of fun, you know, light. and but, you know, But they're talking about football still. You know, especially that's on a Monday through fr- like I end on a Friday, you know, recapping yeah. the week and previewing. But even exactly. Wednesday, that can get dull. <laughs> yeah, you know, like the closest thing to a to a hot take show that I watch is PTI. That you know, like I still watch that. 
But even that, you know, I, I, I like the fact that they've got the topics on the side of the screen because, you know, I'll turn it on, I'll mm -hmm. scan the topics, you know, I'll forward to the top, you know, like I'll forward past, you know, like the three NBA questions that seem to start off every show these days. I'm glad we're getting closer to NFL season, you know, but so, but that's about it, you know, like is, is PTI and even that's not quite, you know, it's not like Stephen A and all that. Kind of Sometimes stuff. I feel like ESPN or the mothership as it's called other places. They put like, I feel like somebody in the morning produces their topics for the day and every show has to talk about them in a certain order. And sometimes the topics just are, I don't, it, it seems like there's an agenda there to promote their own, whatever sport they have on the network that they're going right. to be having. So it's hard for me to enjoy a hot take or, and then, you know, they're arguing on purpose. Neither one of them probably care about either side. They just yeah. don't want to agree because that's bad television. Yep. Colin Cowherd's always been a hot take artist. I never really cared to listen to him. You know, but the, the the radio station I was at before this, his show was on before my show, so I listened to him a little bit more than you know I used to. You know, so just like with everybody, you know, some stuff you might agree with, some stuff not. But you know, he's always pretty much been, you know, like a radio show hot take artist because whether he actually believes everything that he says or not, he gets a lot of aggregation, and that's that's typically like where I see. You know, the hot takes is not on the show itself, but the aggregation afterwards, either the social media or, you know, like somebody grabs it and then writes a story about it, you know, that kind of thing. And you, and you see it after the fact. Well, and that's what I remember Colin Cowherd. I used to listen to him when I was driving to college. I mean, that's how long he's been around. But he would always say my ratings are so much higher when I have a take that's wrong the next day. That's Everybody true. wants to see that's how he, he cares about pro. It. Yep. And so he's always kind of put that out there. And. Yeah, is, is it does it really mean that he means those takes, or is he just doing it to be an actor almost or a personality and some reason to watch him? It's unique to watch. And Colin, like especially him, he I think he has football knowledge is great. His gambling knowledge, because he grew up in the he was in Vegas for a while, stuff like that he's good at. But during baseball season, he'll even admit, I don't know anything about baseball. So they're thirsty for football content. It depends what show you're watching, what the personalities are, but some of them have good um, insight into certain sports, but not other sports. So it yep. just depends who you're listening to and what their takes are. Sid Irish said, anyone see big Michael Mayer on Bussing with the Boys? He's a monster. That is a uh, a uh, Barstool podcast, and we've actually got a cut that you're going to hear from that a little bit. A little bit Speaking of a tease there. Takes and all that kind of good stuff. That's right. We've got a lot today. We've got a lot. So let's go ahead and get into this. You know, the reason I bring up now Heard is mm – -hmm. It takes us to our main topic. How, how close is Notre Dame to a national championship? And so Cowherd gets involved in this because he says of the 130 Division I FBS college football programs, there are 17 he thinks actually have a chance to win a national championship. And he's not just talking about this year. In his words, he's saying for the foreseeable future. So he broke the 17 teams that he has into three different categories. We'll talk about the teams in each category in a minute. First, here are the three groups, the three categories that he has and how he describes them. First group, the real deal group. These are the best rosters in college football. They out-recruit people. They almost always have the right to uh, coach. They have the right facilities. They have the passion. They have the geography. So that's the real deal group, top of the heap. The close group. The teams that feel really close and could win a national championship, but they don't have quite the depth of a roster or talent. They need breaks, but 
could win if they stayed healthy and teams in their division got banged up. So that's the middle group. And the third group, the still waiting group, he says these teams could in the foreseeable future win a national championship. This group's been dominant before, but we keep waiting for them. When it's rolling, those teams can beat the first group and the second group, and I feel like there is either chaos, politics, dysfunction, or they can't get it going. So that's how he describes the three groups. So here are the teams that he puts in each group. The real deal group, he has Alabama, Clemson, Georgia, LSU, Ohio State, and Oklahoma. In the next tier, the close group, he's got Notre Dame, Michigan, Baylor, Oregon, and Penn State. And then in the third group, the still waiting group, he has Florida, Florida State, Miami, Texas, Texas A&M, and USC. No, there won't be a quiz afterwards. Yeah, I saw that. Too. I just wanted to set all this up, though, you know, so that you know kind of what we're talking about. So, for first, we're going to talk more specifically about Notre Dame in a minute. But do you agree with with this kind of tier ranking that he has, Bobby? And are there any you know teams not in his tiers that you would put in there? Well, like we can get to teams in a second, but you're talking about his definition of. The no, I'm not talking tier. about the definition. Now, now we're going yeah. to talk about the teams. Like, yeah, do you agree with where he put these teams? You know, like the real deal group, for example. No, you know, I don't up think there at the top. I don't think Clemson belongs in there at this point. I think that the because real of deal. One bad year, you're going to yank Clemson out, even though they've won two national championships in the last six years. Yeah, because in college football, you're only as good as your last season because the roster turns over so much. You still have the same coach in place, obviously, in the same facilities, but they weren't good enough for long enough for me to be in that conversation. They, I think they belong in the next group down, but there was nothing about last year that says they're still in that level or trajecting up. I All you saw them was crash hard. And I can see what you're saying. saying. I, think, I think this year, though, is going to be a big year. For them. Sure, absolutely. You know, like That's it, what I'm, if they I'm can saying, bounce back you're about this year. Current blue bloods, current favorites, I don't put them anywhere near that level. And right. I understand I mean, you're they saying had, they had basically success. two. Yeah, they had two generational quarterbacks who mm-hmm. were, you know, high first round pick. You know, Trevor Lawrence, obviously at the top of the draft, and and Deshaun Watson as well. You know, his mm-hmm. his other stuff aside, you're talking about two generational quarterbacks, and that's predominantly, you know, they won a national championship. With each of them, so I can see what you're saying, but again, I, I'm not willing to knock them out of that top tier just yet because of one season. You know, this this season's going to go a long way for me. You know exactly well, where they are. I think you're weighing the championships a lot more than I am. I think because Notre well, Dame's success has been stronger than Clemson's if you because of last year. Well, so I would almost put Notre Dame as one that I would expect to win a championship before Clemson at this point. I think you know, their path. And we're going to see this year when they play each other. But I think, I just think Notre Dame should be ahead of Clemson because Notre Dame's been on that playoff bubble. They've been right around in the playoffs or just out of it. And Clemson had a year that's declining that they didn't even look like they were competitive in some of their games. Right. It, it, you so do I see what you're get... saying. It's it's five, ten years. He's saying that's the group. That's the main group. Right. And you I do understand have to that. track record, though. You know, like you're talking right. about, you know – but but like for example, here's what here's the teams that I would put it at the top, the real deal group. Alabama, I would put Clemson in there, I would put Georgia in there, and I would put Ohio State in there. That's it. Okay. Those are all multiple college football playoff teams, all but Georgia with multiple. Well, I guess 
Ohio State just with one national championship, but they've also played in championship games. They've beaten Clemson, for example. So, you know, again, it, I, I guess it's, you know, where you, I just always think you can't fall too much prey to recency bias. Like you can't, you know, you can't be Mike Greenberg and overreact to everything that's going on right now. You do still have to weigh at least some of the last few years, right? You know, you you, you have to take their track record into account. And these are all teams that are still recruiting very well. And, you know, and that's, that's a big factor in all this as well. It absolutely is a big deal. But then you talk about recent shouldn't be your bias. Well, Clemson's recent history is what put them in this conversation because 10 years ago, they wouldn't again, have been anywhere near the top. Well, yeah, but yeah, but like you're, but again, like you're saying one down year, you know, quote unquote down year, you know, a couple of losses. And now all of a sudden you're willing to kip, kick him to the curb. DJ Uyangalale is still a five-star quarterback. Now, did he have a great year last year? No. We'll see again. We'll see what he does this year. And so I'm not going to push him out of that tier just because they had one down year just yet. Now, again, the herd herd has LSU and Oklahoma in this top group. I can't put them up there. I don't know. I've got to put them in this in in that next tier group. I can't put LSU in, you know, because again, they had a national championship obviously, but that's the only college football playoff appearance they have made in the 8 years of the playoff. You know, so they have that's, you know, they they had a lightning in a bottle season. They had all this NFL talent. Obviously, the head coach is gone, you know, within a year and a half after winning that championship. And the new coach they've got has to prove he can actually recruit at an elite level. You know, just because he moves to LSU and has a new address doesn't all of a sudden mean that he's going to be recruiting at that level. I do think no. he's a better coach than either Ed Orgeron or, or Les Miles, who both have national championships. But again, he's got to prove he can do it. Yeah, I, I think LSU is a layup to not be in that top group. I I mean, we're going to break it down extra because it's Brian Kelly. and it's. But why? what about LSU? I think they're a nice team that it almost reminds me of they recruit or they've the way they've done their runs is they build up for one good year and they have that great year and then they're down for five years. Yeah. So I put them in that middle group, maybe, maybe the bottom group, because I think that they've also had – you talk about one bad year that Clemson had and we're, we're disagreeing on that one. But I think LSU's had more than one down year, and that's why they have a new coach yeah. every couple yeah. times. So, no, I think LSU's not – I don't even think i put them in the middle group, especially wow. as the SEC gets tougher. It's going to be harder and harder to be good, which is also why Oklahoma, to me, lands in that middle group. Because I think Oklahoma, if it, in, the, like in the Big 12 world, they're still going to be a player every year to make the playoff. And if you make the playoff, you got a yeah, shot. But, but that's only a couple years that they've got left of that, though. And that's, that's why I'm problem. saying that they yeah. go down to the middle group for me because they're, they're, it's going to be hard for them to excel in the SEC. It's a different brand of football, and you're going to see the, the cream rise, and they still have a program and a brand, and they're not going to be terrible. But I think it's like that top layer is almost like the current blue blood program. And I know we've talked about that term blue blood and what that means in different ways before. But I, don't, I just don't see Oklahoma or LSU being super relevant because I think that top group is almost – you would bet money on them out of your your bank account to make the playoff this year and see which one of those win. Yeah, and said that's why I also said, don't put. Yeah, said I were said Ellis. Said I were. Are you going to let me talk here? <laughs> I have to. I'd rather not. <laughs> said I said LSU didn't play football until 2002, and that's it's kind of right because you know now now granted they finally figured it out and they're doing a little bit different down there, 
But, uh, you know, I've got a good friend who covered LSU football for a long time, and he said, you know, that was a fan base that was really entitled and basically acted like they were always good. But, you know, it, it the, the corner didn't turn until Nick Saban showed up, and now these other guys, you know, have kind of taken the baton. And again, like, if Ed Orgeron could win a national championship, I've got to give Brian Kelly at least a chance. That's why I keep them in that middle group. I'm not willing to bump them because, like, again, when you look at those teams that were in that bottom group, I think LSU is definitely above them. Alan Krentz said LSU was all on Joe Burrow's quarterback. I mean, you know, that was part of it, but it also didn't hurt to have Justin Jefferson and Jamar Chase, you know, to throw the ball to. They're two I guess of the top. they're working out in the pros. Yeah, I mean, and one of the, the best last- quarterbacks and two of the best receivers in the NFL right now. And the, a lot of that lands on recruiting because, like you said, the coaches haven't been great down there. But, yeah, I mean, the last three head coaches at LSU have all won championships. So you could – you know, that, that they still must have the recruiting poll and the facilities and they're in the SEC. I just – I continually think that the SEC is just going to be harder and harder to win. And some of these programs that are elite are going to get knocked down a peg. They're just going to have to. Like Oklahoma and Texas moving, obviously it's about money and not success. But those teams, they're, they're not going to be – like the top of the Big 12 might not be competitive with the top of the SEC. Or the top of the SEC might fall down a little if Oklahoma slides in above LSU. Yeah. So I think you really got to look at where you think those programs will be in five years. Yeah. See, and that's – I can't put Oklahoma any farther above Notre Dame in this group because, again, okay, yeah, I mean, Oklahoma's done well in the Big 12, like you said, but now they're going to the SEC here. They've got a new head coach – as well and you know they've they've made four trips to the college football playoff but they haven't even you know they've not won any of their semifinals either and you know a big part of why they got there is because of the conference well you know they they've had talent don't get me wrong but i just think it's going to be a lot tougher for them in the sec and again i can't well, put them above notre dame like if we're tearing this thing like like so Bird did you're putting tears out i'm very curious let's get very specific if okay. you have to rank in this in this process, Notre Dame, LSU, and Oklahoma, what? How do you rank those three? What order do I put them in? Yeah, as of as of today, sure. you know, based on everything, I would I would go. I would go Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. I would go. Now this is as long as Oklahoma is still in the Big Twelve. I would go Oklahoma, and then I would go LSU. But once Oklahoma up, moves to the SEC, I would put LSU above them, though. Okay. See, I I think Oklahoma's still enough of a brand, and they can they'll find their feet in the SEC, and I think they'll still be better than LSU. I know it's based on we're just talking about fantasy, kind of because it's five, ten years down the road here. <laughs> but I just think the Oklahoma program will settle itself in the top tier of the of the. SEC, I saw that comment. <laughs> <laughs> if Ed Orgeron won a national championship, I have to at least give BK a chance. Sean Styers, a.k.a. the new Stephen A. Smith. That's like, I mean, can you disagree with that, though? But Do you disagree? Like, Ed so Orgeron, else is Ed Orgeron doesn't even have a job right now. You know? Right. There is, there, is, there is no universe where Ed Orgeron is a better coach than Brian Kelly, he might have been moderately, you know, a little bit better recruited for a window. But again, like when you look at the bulk of those guys on that roster, most of those guys came from less miles, you know. So, well, and Ogeron himself, they tried to get rid of him, they couldn't find any better, so they just promoted him from intern coach to coach. He didn't recruit all those kids, he didn't bring in that whole roster of, 
all those players. He wasn't there long enough to build the program because he was so bad at coaching. He got his championship and he got out. Right. He now, might be the worst coach to win a championship. So you're putting – so, again, you moved LSU way down. I've got Notre Dame in that middle group. They're still knocking at the door because of what you talk – and especially now, you know, with the way recruiting is, you know, I kind of keep them in that middle group. They're they're knocking on the door. They're getting to playoffs. They've obviously – the next step is the recruiting, and hopefully that gets you over the hump, you know, closing the gap like we've been, all been talking about for so long. Cowherd has Baylor, Michigan, Notre Dame, Oregon, Penn State all at the same level. There's again, there's no universe where Penn State is on the same level as Notre Dame right now. I'm sorry. They're they're the next tier down. They can't even win their own division in the Big Ten. They're not national championship contenders. Michigan, they've been to the playoff once. Look at their recruiting. They, you know, that's it, it's a one-off. They I've got to put them the next tier down. Baylor is the next tier down. Oregon sort of at the bottom of this middle tier, you know, yeah. I can see them, you know, especially when you consider what's on the next tier down. I do think that Oregon is above them. But again, like when you look at recent history, it's not like Oregon has, has really been a true national contender by any means. They haven't won any big games lately. No, I think Oregon's a nice little program, but also with what they're losing in the PAC 12, I don't know where they can play to be competitive and out West in general, since the playoff era, has not had success in the playoff. Washington's made it. You know, you could almost put Washington in the bottom group. But Oregon, I think they can recruit. They have the facility. Have they had the right coach in place? Have they, you know, the climate, is it right? I don't understand why they're up so high. But they're the one that in that group that you mentioned that could be comparable to Notre Dame in terms of having good seasons, having a shot at the playoff. And you expect them to be, even on their worst year, being pretty good. I think it's a joke that Baylor's on there. I mean, yeah, I don't even you know, know where that comes from. I, is it because of that media market being big and they're valuable? Because they, they shouldn't, they haven't had any success. They haven't flirted with the playoff. They haven't, like, they've never been to the top of anything. <laughs> right. Right. So I don't understand. I mean, they'll that be, one. you know, they'll be better in the Big 12 now that Texas and Oklahoma are leaving. So, but what does know, that just, mean? Just by default. But then again, you also have Cincinnati coming in, and Cincinnati is a team. That, you know, again, like when I look at these bottom tier teams that he had, you know, Florida, Florida State, Texas a and I'd, I'd at least put Cincinnati in the mix with those teams right now, you know, like in that in that bottom tier. They just made the playoff. They're going to the Big 12 and Luke Fickle stayed around and they're still recruiting right now. OK, but if you want to talk about Big 12 and, and success, what's what they're going to have left over? I'd put Oklahoma State in one of these groups over Baylor. I think Oklahoma State, they, they've never won a championship, but they've, they're always competitive. They're always ranked. They, they, they've been more consistent of what's left of the Big 12 than Baylor. Yeah, they'll be interesting now, you know, again, with, with I mean, Oklahoma. I flagship, yeah. You know, yeah, I mean, with, with Oklahoma leaving, the conference is set up at least for the next few years. Now, you know, what's Cincinnati even going to be, you know, three years from now when, when the move comes? But, I mean, it's really – Cincinnati, Oklahoma State, Baylor should be at the top of that conference. Who knows, you know, if some other teams change hand, you know, change conferences and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I mean, they'll be in kind of almost by default. I mean, it's it's been a, a solid program under Gundy now, and it, like the guy's been there forever. But 
again, it's like they've they've always been the stepchild because of the fact that they've had Oklahoma there to contend with. And they, I mean, they're not even going to play the rivalry series right. for the immediate but, future after they leave. But if you're going to throw Baylor in the middle tier of what he's talking about, I mean, Oklahoma State has to either be in the same tier or at least mentioned in a tier, I think, because I don't think Baylor's been good enough for long enough to be elevated over anything. So if you're going to pick a Big 12 program that's there, Cincinnati's a good one for the next group, I think, because they've they've made one playoff, but and they still have Fickle. I just think Oklahoma State, something should be mentioned. And Gundy is a coach. He's proven himself to be a recruiter and a motivator. Let's let's talk specifically about Notre Dame now. We we both mm-hmm. had him in that middle tier, but let's talk specifically, you know, the the most relevant question to this conversation. How close do you think Notre Dame is to you know, being ready to win a national championship. I think Notre Dame's 14 wins away from winning a national championship. <laughs> oh, Bobby. In a row. Um, no, I, they're going to be right up there. Like the way that everything broke down last year, they almost made the playoff. And that was going into the season. It wasn't supposed to be one of their best teams. So I think that, you know, you, you look at a team like Notre Dame that's going to have another schedule with a couple key games. And if you beat Ohio State and you beat Clemson, I don't see why you couldn't beat everybody else in your schedule. And I think they're not far away from a championship. Yeah. I think this year should be a playoff year. And then I think I could see them going even further next year. And I think that's what, you know, Salty Virginia Peanut says Notre Dame should be in the top group. They've been to the playoffs more than once. That group has confirmed itself. Also, Notre Dame is on the way up. The only difference I think that I would say is, you know, that that group like the, the ones that I listed, Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, Georgia they're basically those teams have combined to win seven of the last eight national championships that's why I have them in the top group with Notre Dame right right behind them because they've been you know Notre Dame and Oklahoma right behind them they've both been to the playoffs multiple times you know they they've got to win a semifinal game and get to the championship game first but I agree with what you're saying you know like I think a lot of people not necessarily writing this year off but you know due to some extent, you know, that BK PTSD <laughs> that we've all talked about. It's very you know, look real. At this, yeah, it's very real. Look at this, you know, to some extent as a transition year, you've got a new head coach, you've got a first-year quarterback and all those things. I, I think that there's every reason to believe that this year can be a playoff team. You know, we know the hurdles that they've got to clear to get there, you know, the, the, the three main games and, you know, fourth maybe if you include BYU – but they can they have every reason to believe that they can be a playoff team next year with next year or this year with next year being an even stronger case for being a playoff team and then you know you've got all those you know next year's the 2023 class all this this number 1 number 2 class it's going to be top 5 they'll all be freshmen next year and then they move in you know by that by that next year by the time that group of sophomores i think that you know, and then you've you've got another highly rated class that's going to be coming right in behind him. I think that that's that's definitely that time where they look at they have every reason to believe that they can be serious national championship contenders at that point. Not just getting to the playoff, but winning in the semifinal and playing in the national championship game. But there's a lot to unpack there because I feel like when you look at Notre Dame's performance in the playoff and in big games. They're closer than people have realized. I think the gap in most of the years that they've been good between one and two and the rest of the field has been massive. 
So maybe they made the playoff. Maybe they got beat pretty bad. But then look at the championship game, and Notre Dame played Alabama closer than their championship game. Right. And I think some of the stigma is still on Brown Notre Dame can't win the big one. Well, look at those first-round playoff games. None of them have been close. The average margin of victory is astronomical. I don't have the exact number, but it's always a blowout. Um, and I think you're looking at Notre Dame as a program that's elevated itself to be in that next tier, which is the tiers we're talking about. It's just I, people see that they lost to Alabama by 30. Well, Alabama won the championship by 35 against apparently a tougher opponent. So I think Notre Dame is a lot closer than what people have thought recently and what where their what their stigma is lately about not winning the big one. They're well, playing in the big one. And how many teams are playing in the big one every year? So yeah. that, I think that they're a little bit closer than the national scheme says. And I know that they still have another jump to make to make that tier. I agree with you. I don't think they're in the top tier, but I think they're closer to that top tier than what people realize. No, you're right. Especially, I think, the national perception because of what you're talking about, because it's not just them losing these lopsided games, but because they're Notre Dame and because they're polarizing, you That's get it. And because they haven't won any of these big games and they have tended to lose, you know, even, you know, like, the Fiesta Bowl this past year was that was the closest, you know, New Year's Six type bowl that they've played in in a long time. They've tended to lose those games. But again, go back and and look at these other teams that are playing in these games and look at the recruiting rankings and and how that all matches up. That's why you've got to believe now that Notre Dame is going to be legit the way, you know, Marcus Freeman has run things, the way Marcus Freeman, you know, is is putting together these highly rated recruiting classes that Brian Kelly you know, said that he couldn't reel in. And that's, you know, that that's going to be the difference ultimately. You know, I think that that's what it's going to come down to. That's, that's how they're, they're going to, you know, if, if they're going to start actually not just competing in those games, but winning them, that it's, it's all going to come down to what, what's taken place, you know, out on the recruiting trail. Well, you're right. They put themselves, they've turned the pro, the, the corners of program, I believe, when they started, when they beat LSU in a bowl game. It was an SEC team that was a pretty good SEC team, LSU, which it's funny that they keep coming up. But Notre Dame won a bowl game against them. And that was their first win against the SEC in so long. It was the first big bowl win. And I think that that, that was years ago now, but they've gone up and up and up. And they, you can't talk about the top recruits, the top teams, the top programs, top history without having Notre Dame in all of that. So you're right. You know, Freeman is a brand new coach. So it's kind of nervous to see where this year goes. But I think they're just keep building upwards, even with yeah. losing the most winningest coach of the program. Their their trajectory, which I keep breaking up that word, is going up. And that's that's something to say about them. So I think that they're they're going to be pretty close to a championship in the next few years. I agree. All right. Next hot taker, Chris Mad Dog Russo. He's been filling in for Stephen A. Smith on first take this week. And again, I haven't watched. I just, this is stuff that I've seen, you know, the video tweeted out and all this stuff. And the topic is still Notre Dame. Uh, Russo did his ranking of the most storied college football programs of all time. He goes, number one, Notre Dame. Number two, Michigan. Number three, Alabama. Number four, USC. Number five, Oklahoma. Do you have any, uh, you know, do you take exception with anything in that ranking? Is Would, would you put Notre Dame at the top of the heap? Like I say, I, I brought this up a few weeks ago, but, yeah, I think Notre Dame number one I'm comfortable with, and that's not a homer pick. I think you can't talk about the history. championships, seven Heismans, 104 consensus 
All-Americans, more than anyone else consensus All-Americans in that list. But Notre Dame has expanded what college football is. They were the Newt Rockney helped invent the forward pass. Like he's the first one to use that, you know, regularly. They were the first national team playing on the train, going out playing whoever, going all the way out to California to play games. They were the ones that kind of evolved the game. So I don't think it's it's like saying Kansas basketball. They helped, you know, the right. the legacy that they put in the game, Notre Dame. You like can't when we're talking that. about blue bloods. I mean, this is a very blue blood college football list. That's for sure. And you know, like there there was a time that maybe you might have put USC at the top of the heap. And like the guys who were on with Russo or you know doing in side eyes and all this stuff. Whoa. Alabama and all their national championships. And it's, again, you can't get caught up in just what's going on right now because forever is a mighty long time, you know, right, Prince? So it's like (laughs) you can't just talk about what's going on right now. Just because Alabama is dominant right now does not make them, you know, the most storied program of all time. Sure, it's been a while since Notre Dame has won a national championship, but the, the history of college football is, you know, the, the, the foundation is laid with Notre Dame down there. I think we're agreeing on different ways, though, because yeah, I mean, I'm not arguing with you. I'm just no, I'm just saying, yeah, they haven't won a championship since 88. Absolutely. But they have stayed relevant throughout all the changes of the game. Think about how much it's changed. Hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. Hold it. You're telling me Alabama has stayed relevant through all the changes in the game? No, no, no. I'm saying I agree. Okay, I'm just saying, okay. like you said, it's been a long time since Notre Dame won a championship. Again, it's like it's, it's how many programs have won a championship in that time? Not many. And Notre Dame's still relevant, and they still have been successful through all okay. the changes. I'm saying they're the only one that's done that. Right, right. So that's what I'm saying. We're agreeing. I just I saying that they haven't won one in a while. A lot of programs haven't won one in even longer. USC yes. had a couple good spurts, but they haven't been sustained good. Alabama had a really dark time. You know, until Saban came back and resurrected that program, you know, I'm saying that I think everybody in that list has had ups and downs, whereas Notre Dame has always stayed relevant, minus the Faust years, maybe, but yeah. which propelled them to get holes well, and then go to a championship. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the Davy Willingham Weiss, you know, I'm moving my hand up and down, you know, it was ebbs and flows. It's, you know, they could never put together back to back good True. seasons. And, you know, again, like, like for whatever shot you want to take at Brian Kelly, and we're going to talk about him here in a little bit as well. He did, you know, consistently win over these last five years. And, you know, you, that's something that you cannot take for granted. But again, it's still a program that has another level to go to now when we talk about now and national championships and all that kind of good stuff. And even in their dark eras, there was still like a little shining light here and there. So like that 05 year, I mean, that team – they lost to Michigan State and USC on the Bush push, but they were still really, really talented and really, really good. Yeah. And I know that they then they had to rebuild a little bit before and after that. But even in their dark times, they still had a shot at something big. So not a lot of programs can have that kind of success, even in their dark eras. Some of the dark, dark eras are five years in a row of 500 or less ball. Yeah, I agree. I agree. All right. Another topic for us. And once again, we're sticking with Notre Dame. This one, okay, so Netflix has <laughs> a documentary coming out. It's called Untold, The Girlfriend Who Didn't Exist, The Story of Manti Teo. It's coming to Netflix a little bit less than a month from now, August 16th. 
before we get to our thoughts on that, here's the Netflix trailer. This is just the audio. So you're obviously not going to be able to see their faces, but you will hear comments in this trailer from Jack Swarbrick, from Manti Teo himself, and the young man who pretended to be Teo's girlfriend, Lene Kakua. Right? So you ready, Bobby? Yeah. Fired Here up. Here we go. Manti Teo had an absolutely astounding senior year. His grandmother and girlfriend, Lene Kakua, had died the same night. He dedicated his season to them. It was an amazing story. I mean, they were with me, you know. I miss them. One problem, his girlfriend did not exist. I don't think anyone can appreciate how big a story it became. This was a very sophisticated hoax, perpetrated for reasons we can't understand. At this point, I'm at the Heisman ceremony. I don't know what to think, and I can't tell anybody what's going on. He'll never say it affected his play, but you could definitely see something was up. We just thought, what sick joke is someone trying to put on us? My uncle immediately said, I think you're getting catfish. Right? Read it on that? Doubt. I created this fictional character, Lene. I totally felt fear. I didn't have courage to just be like, this is who I am. It became evident that we had a major story. I was afraid this was going to affect my NFL future. I don't think he had any concept of how much the media will build you up and then tear you down. I didn't expect it to blow up so quickly. This is about to hit the fan. That's when everything went chaotic. There were two people. It was crazy. My whole world changed, and I'm questioning everything. So there you go. Again, that's the audio for the Netflix trailer for Untold, uh, the girlfriend who didn't exist, the Manti Teo story. And uh, Vigo was saying he is he's ready for it. What do you think, Bobby? Are you ready for it? I, I'm sure that people at least have some mixed feelings about this coming out. Yeah, I think it. I it's always weird when a documentary comes out about something I've lived through. And, you know, working in sports media at that point, I remember so much of that. So, but yeah, it's always nice. To, like, it's such a unique story. It was a sign of the times almost because catfishing was now becoming a thing. And, and I had never. I didn't when either. The, when that story broke, when that story broke, it came out on Deadspin that night. I was in my kitchen getting dinner ready. And then all of a sudden, it's all over the place. And the next thing you know, within like an hour and a half, I'm sitting at a press conference over at the Goog, and Jack Swarbrick mentions catfishing. And I had never heard that term before. I had no idea what that was before. And there's, and it turned out, you know, I think as he said, there's a whole series on. I think it was on MTV or VH1 mm -hmm. or something like. There's a whole series about catfishing. I had no idea what it was. Right. Well, that, I don't think Jack Swarbrook knew what it was either until that yeah. day, probably. Uh, that documentary, just the, the story just has so much meat on it. Like there was one guy, I can't remember his name. He played for the Cardinals in the NFL. And I remember he came out with like, oh, I know they're real. I've talked to them, too. And then he got real quiet afterwards because <laughs> obviously he had gotten catfished as well. Manti Teo was just a star. And like for him to get tripped up and mixed up in a catfish and the way it all turned out, uh, yeah, it's one of those situations. Like you said, you knew exactly where you were when you heard about it. Yeah. I was at my bowling league that night. I remember exactly where I was. And, it, you know, anything that has that kind of moment to it where you remember where you were, I think who doesn't want to see a little bit of a documentary about it? 
depends how long it is. You might not stay through the whole documentary, but you know, yeah, it'd be kind of cool to see. And especially that he's being interviewed as part of it. Like how has he evolved? I'd like to go back and get his like day by day process of that whole situation, that whole timeline. Yeah. So maybe it will be some unique new stuff. Cause we all know the story. It's not old anymore. Like, see, you know, and we, that's, that's why I think, you know, like it would be one thing if Netflix, you know, like what you want in a documentary is you're going to learn something. You're going to, you know, like see, you know, things that maybe you haven't seen or heard before and that they're actually going to, you know, dig in on both sides of this and, and get to the actual truth of the matter. Cause there's, there's still, and I just put up a, you know, a comment. There's still people who think that, that Manti, maybe he wasn't completely, you know, fully in on this, but that, you know, he kind of knew what was going on and he played this up and that kind of stuff. I think, though, the fact that you've got Jack Swarbrick sitting in front of a microphone and a cam camera, you've got Manti himself, and then you've got the guy who, you know, again, I don't know. I I, I don't know the actual guys, you know, the, the, the person who said he was, was behind it. Yeah, the person who was behind it. You, you've got you all know, the players. Yeah, you've got the players on record on this thing. So that's, that's kind of what I'm curious to see is what, you know, what we find out that we didn't really know, you know, like what is the Lene person going to cop to, you know, like, you know, like what, what's, are, are we going to find out that maybe Manti knew more than he was letting on all those different things? I, I feel like, you know, just, you know, again, like how much you actually find out when you're, you know, in the media and you're sitting there and you're in a sterile environment and interviews. And I, I just, I feel like everything that we know about Manti, he was, he was pretty naive, obviously, to the whole thing. But plenty of people do get catfished as well. But, you know, I'm like, I'm not like, oh, this is, you know, just another, you know, smear piece on Notre Dame and Manti and the whole thing. I, I, I'm looking forward to to seeing this and, and seeing what we actually find out that's new out of this whole thing. Yeah. Well, like you said, it's an issue or it was, especially then because like all of the FaceTiming and stuff that really got progressed over COVID, we didn't know all of that back then. So how hard is it to FaceTime with someone? And obviously he never did, or it was dark. I, it, it's interesting. And I want to know more about the timeline and see how honest everybody is because he had, like he was gullible. You said naive. I would use the word gullible. They're the kind of the same. It, it's unfortunate that he got tripped up by it and got mixed up in it because he is the poster child of catfish now. When yeah. anybody 10 years later now, anybody hears the term catfish, we think of Manti Teo because that's the it could have been any celebrity or any star. And even if he wasn't up for the Heisman, it wouldn't have been as big of a deal. It just all came together in this perfect tornado of stuff. And I want to see how the timeline works and like, what was he really thinking when he was at the Heisman dinner? Cause he had a legit shot to win it. I think he got second in the voting that year and yeah. he had to have known at that point. And like you say, people like um, I keep seeing comments talking about the Kyle Rudolph interview. I'm sure everybody knew something was weird. Cause how can you have a girlfriend and like you're around these people all the time and you've never seen them never, ever. So it's, it'll be interesting to see the time, the timing of it all and see what players found out when players meaning in the documentary, like Jack Swarbrick, did he just find out that day or did he know before? And like, were they trying to figure out how to, how to smooth the media over and move on past it, hoping it wouldn't come out or was there a threat that it would come out and why did it come out when it did? Cause it was a random Wednesday evening. Like 
it just seems I would like I want to I'm more excited about the timeline and learning about the issue because we all know what happened. He talked to somebody that wasn't real. Right. Well, and somebody there's a lot of comments going through our YouTube chat right mm-hmm. now said something about, you know, well, he was with a lot of other girls while this was going on. It's like that that doesn't make it any less true. There there are plenty of athletes who girlfriends who, you know, find their way to other people at the same time if their girlfriend is not on campus, you know, it, so that, that, that doesn't make, make, you know, him believing or not believing this any less true, just because oh. maybe he was with somebody else in the meantime. And who knows like what the relationship was with the fake person, um, because maybe they were on a break, maybe they got into a fight. So I don't think that holds yeah. any water into the situation. And, you know, we have so many comments flowing through right now and everybody's saying that they remember where they were and, it's just one of those issues that I think it, whether we agree, like it or not, it's captivating. And for some reason it's held interest for this long and Netflix is promoing it and making it into a bigger deal because there's still interest. It's still such a fascinating story. Right. And that's, you know, that's why I'm looking forward to seeing this and, you know, kind of seeing everything laid out. You know, he did some of the interviews and stuff like that afterwards and it, and it, and it is, it, it completely ended up overshadowing a great career and a great season for a true, you know, for a linebacker, you know, because like even like Charles Woodson as a defensive player, when he won the Heisman, he was also really defense. You're right. But he was also returning punts and, you know, doing that kind of thing. You know, it's, it's like Man Titeo was just playing middle linebacker and he was, you know, like a, a, a you know, a classic just you know, plug middle, you know, middle linebacker, an undersized middle linebacker. A slow and, one. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, as it turned out, you know, slower, much slower than we ever would have thought. But I mean, that was just a fantastic season that he had. And it was that defense that propelled that team into the national championship game. And and all of this, you know, again, very unfortunately ended up overshadowing what a great season he had just for him to end up in New York as a Heisman finalist. And he basically won every other award that a guy could win that year. He won like six or seven, you know, awards besides being the Heisman runner up that year because he had such a great season. And and I don't think that, you know, the story that went behind this had anything to do with him winning those awards or him ended up ending up in New York as a Heisman runner up. Well this kind of piggybacks on what you just said about Notre Dame being the most iconic program in college football. If he's playing down you know, LSU is this as big of a deal as it is at Notre Dame because Notre Dame is such a big deal. But and then, you know, moving out of it, how do you move forward? Because, you know, he has to get razzed all the time, constantly. And I'm, I'm hopefully when he got to the NFL, his social media team, you know, vetted everything he did. But right. I think he did everything right. Like You're looking at a guy that had more egg on his face and was embarrassed. I can't imagine the level of embarrassment. And he ate his crow and said, yeah. You know, I thought it was real and blah, blah, blah. Like he was out front about it. At least he didn't just deny it or never talk about it. So it's also one of the reasons to watch a documentary is kind of for me to see like, okay, here we are 10 years later. What does he feel about it now? What were his thoughts? How has he learned? And like, how did he get through that situation? Because once the situation exploded, it exploded. And he still oh, had an NFL time. career, but yeah, I'd like to see what his thoughts were as he was going through it. Right. All right, we've got another Notre Dame topic now as 
this is kind of ended up just being sort of a Notre Dame rapid fire tonight, but there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, the, the chat got going quickly once we started talking about that Manti uh, documentary. <laughs> and again, that's coming out on Netflix August 16th. So we've got, what, about uh, three and a half weeks, something like that. So And they have that Untold series has several documentaries that are already on there. And do they? They always okay. do a good job. Okay. I haven't good seen the storytelling. See. August 16th is a Tuesday. Next day, Wednesday, there's going to be a it's practice calendar at works. Notre Dame. Yeah, you're on that's it. Right. That's right. But I'm just <laughs> looking to see like who's going to be on the show that those next couple of days. So, all right. So we had this question the other day on YouTube. It came up like in a like the you know when the show gets posted to YouTube and archived afterwards. You know, people can still comment on the you know on the shows on the videos. <laughs> on YouTube. Joe Blow, seriously, Joe Blow is the user's <laughs> name. And he said, question for you. I've noticed such a difference between the departures of Coach Kelly and Coach Jarrett. Of course, Link Jarrett, the baseball coach he's referring to. Why has the Notre Dame fan base and media been so down on Kelly after leaving compared to Coach Jarrett? You Jarrett left. Hold on. Jarrett left. Players and coaches subsequently left afterwards as a result, but it was nothing but congratulations and goodwill for him. Contrast that with Kelly, whereby it's been nothing but negativity and sour grapes. I fail to see how any of the two are any different except the length of time that Kelly was there. Okay, so hang on a second. Before we respond to this, I'm going to play the Michael Mayer soundbite that I teased earlier in the show. He was on a bar stool podcast and he is talking with will compton so here you're going to hear will compton ask michael mayer a question right off the top here we go coach freeman differs from coach kelly a lot this is no shade toward coach kelly i love coach kelly but coach kelly would never be around in the summers or anything um and freeman's been in pretty much everything and i think coach kelly was probably out recruiting or doing whatever he needed to do but it's pretty nice to have freeman around all summer long really i mean He's just like in it with the boys. He's in it with the boys. You know, he's in our lifts. He's in our runs. He's in it. He's, he's you know, talking with us as we're running and bringing it up. I mean, every after every run, he gives us a speech. He gives us a talk after every lift, whatever. He seems like, like a good like guy. I'm not saying that's bad or, or, or good between Freeman and Kelly, but those are just their two different kind of different styles, and I'd say probably everybody prefers Freeman's style. Especially as a player. As and a player. I mean, like you said, like it's not like you're throwing shade. At the end of the day, Coach Kelly is a very successful like, coach who's, who's went to different colleges and built programs. And you do hear he's more of like a CEO-ish type or more of an office guy, front office guy, which, again, there's different ways to be successful. There's different ways to win. Okay, so there you go. That's Michael Mayer with... Will Compton, and you heard the question. You heard Mike. Well, you know what Michael Mayer said. Bobby, you're shaking your head. What? what how would you respond to all of this? <laughs> well, first of all, the he said besides the time of service to the the team, right? That was his first. What's the difference right. besides? Well, that is a big difference. Brian Kelly was the winningest coach in Notre Dame history, and left in the in cloak and daggers in the dark of night. And then he went to another program that's a lateral move at best, whereas Link Jarrett left for his dream job, a right. place where he's been from to get to the um, comparison between Jarrett and Kelly. He's always wanted to be at Florida State. That's an amazing job for him, an amazing opportunity. He built Notre Dame into something 
that made the playoffs that, you know, hopefully sustains itself a little bit longer, but they also could have just been a team with a good run. And it's hard to have a good run and to make the college world series. So he already did that good for him, but he wasn't here that long. And his dream job was never here. And he was Brian Kelly. And then look at the way he left. Like Ling Jarrett, we almost understand he left for a dream job, right? Okay. Kelly had his team meet at what was it? Seven in the morning right? for a two minute speech after they got after out by the, the media. Before. Yeah, and, that's right. And on a random day again, like just it's, they're not even comparable. The two exits one, it's like, we wish the guy well, because he's going to his dream job and thanks for resurrecting a program that's been dead for 10, 15 years. Meanwhile, Kelly, he's leaving at the height of it, arguably when they're about to make their best run and he might, him leaving might still be a good thing. I'm not, but yeah, the sour grapes come from the way he did it. I almost think and the way he treated the players. I think that that, that is the biggest part of it. The way he did it, you know, because there was actually a window of maybe, you know, when these reports started coming out 10 or 12 hours where people were actually disappointed, you know, that Brian Kelly was leaving. And then when all these things start coming out about the text and the fact, you know, you knew he was staying out in California, you know, to recruit is always the official answer, but he's out there playing golf as well, you know, and doing all this, you know, and then just what you said, the reports come out first and then he texts the team and then they're, you know, they're having this 7 a.m. meeting that lasts a couple minutes. of minutes. Yeah. Whereas, you know, Link Jarrett was, you know, much more upfront, forthright with his team, you know, and there's, there's also the fact that it's baseball versus football. I mean, it's, it's, it's like oh, absolutely. the but... ultimate apples to oranges The you know, the expectations are completely different because, you know, Link Jarrett, it's almost like, you know, football is scrutinized and overanalyzed 365 days a year. But, you know, college baseball, especially at a place like Notre Dame and where they had been down for so long, Link comes in, has a couple of good years. It's really, you know, it's like a feel-good story that everyone can just get behind, you know, when they win a little bit. And then it's like, oh, now his dream job is open, you know, and he, and he moves on for his dream job and his family yeah. lives there and, and the whole thing. So there's a huge difference there. But even all that stuff aside, it's like, you know, I talked about this on Monday's show and I, you know, that's where this comment came from. Probably I'm, I'm sure because of some of the stuff that I was saying, the difference between Marcus Freeman and the way he does things and how Brian Kelly does, you know, just listen to what Michael Mayer was saying. He can say it's not a shot, but just saying that it's a shot. Brian Kelly was an absentee coach. He didn't, he wasn't there unless he absolutely had to be there. And the recruiting that he had reflected the fact that he was absentee, you know, that's like, it, there is a there just you know what you were talking about you've got the all-time winningest coach in Notre Dame history but at the same time you know there were people who almost held that against him because of the way he acted and you know like just look at the fact you know like if you're going to throw the media in there I'm not going to speak for the media but just my own observation and experiences it's like this is a guy who when things went wrong was never able to accept the blame for any of them. You know, post-game press conferences, lashing out at the messenger, lashing out at the person asking the question, lashing out at the center for not being able to snap correctly in a freaking hurricane. You know, all these different things. <laughs> that you really know, so, happened. <laughs> so Brian Kelly may have won, but it's the way he went about things and the lack of authenticity in the way he went about things that I think, you know, his – 
his true nature was reflected every time he had the real opportunity. You know, when things weren't going right, and and someone had the gall to ask him a question, you know, that's going to come up when when things aren't going right. He lashed out at the person asking the question, or he lashed out and pointed the finger everywhere but at himself. And I think that has a big part to do with it. Brian Kelly and his mind were undefeated at Notre Dame because any game they won, he coached a great game and he got the great scheme and he won. Right. And any loss wasn't his fault. Somebody didn't execute it. It was somebody else's fault. He wanted him to be better, but he always spun it as a politician, as you pointed out, that it, he was always in the right coming out of the good side. And when you look That's back right. on it. He's like the Brian- T-1000 in Terminator 2. You know, he could shape shift into anything that he wanted to because of that political background that he had. But even look at the way that it all came down. That's what needs to be a Netflix documentary is the last days of Kelly. <laughs> the like, final I want to see how it all Kelly. and like how he flew down there and like the fake southern accent, the way he left one of his coaches recruiting in a home and didn't tell him he was leaving, and the recruit found out during the ate visit. All his, ate all his barbecue. Yeah. But like leaving your coach on the recruiting trail to let the recruit find out that's so dirty. You need to let them know at least that you're looking or something. Because right now you're just being so completely selfish. And the way the last hours of it were really bad, but he just never yeah. was a guy that was a stand-up guy. Like you, you just got the idea that he was just always above everything. And it was always was ever his fault. It was always transactional. And again, you know, like I was talking about Marcus Freeman and the pictures that I posted to Twitter the other day, you know, Marcus Freeman is at this bowling event for special needs people, Marcus Freeman and the team, and there's no publicity at all about this. When Brian Kelly did those kind of events, they would alert the media and it's like, okay, the, you know, the, now the media shows up, you know, to, to give them the good publicity for this stuff. And so then in exchange, you know, Brian Kelly might give them a little bit afterwards. It's like, you show up and, you know, give me my publicity so everyone can see me here being a good guy. Marcus Freeman they didn't let anyone know they were there. You know, I said this on the show Monday, even, you know, my daughter was there and part of this bowling event, we just knew there was a bowling event. We didn't even know that Marcus Freeman and the football team and other athletes from other sports were going to be showing up to be a part of this. They were just there with a group called uplifting athletes. And, you know, Marcus Freeman is that, you know, he's hands-on. He's like helping the kids, you know, roll the ball you know, down the lane, if Brian Kelly even would have been there, he, again, it would have been like what, what Michael Mayer was talking about, the CEO approach. He would have been standing off to the side, yeah, you know, letting, you know, whoever talked to him or, you know, photos and everything else while the players are actually out there, you know, doing the hands-on stuff. And, and that was a cool event. Those were cool pictures that you posted. I think that Brian Kelly, the way that his attitude is, because, like, Mayer, he was towing the line – a CEO or politician, as we're saying, he is like a watered down version. He's a Nick Saban without the championships, without the big wins. Because Nick Saban's not really a player. You wouldn't see Nick Saban rolling the bowling ball with your daughter, you know? And, and it works for him because he still wins championships. So, like, everybody knows, yeah, we're going to get grumpy Saban, grumpy crazy Saban, but we know we'll get championships. Brian Kelly, we know we're going to get yelled at and get grumpy Kelly, but we also don't have – we're going to get purple face Kelly, but he isn't going to win the big game. He, he got as much out of the Notre Dame program as he could, and I think Notre Dame is better for him being there. But I think that Notre Dame will be better moving forward without him. And it, 
like you got all the bad out of Kelly that you could. I yeah, just the way he would yell at people and like the the U.S. or yeah USC game where he took the field and screamed at his players before halftime, right. like just stuff like that. You don't even Saban, you don't see that kind of stuff at. You know, look again, and yeah, the dancing with the recruit was very cringeworthy. <laughs> he did, yeah, he did something. You know, the winning, specifically the last five years and the BCS championship game season in 2012 you know six of the you know the 12 years there was a lot of winning and you do have to give him you know stabilizing the program getting it back to where it was you know you know closer to the Holtz era than his three predecessors now the schedule does have something to do with that but at the same time you know there's there's a lot of different factors that go into that but the bottom line is they won more consistently than Notre Dame had won in a long time. And there were a lot of people saying that Notre Dame would never even be able, you know, to do that. So you do have to give him the fact that they won. And it's, you know, like I'm not knocking him for that, but it, you're asking why people are, you know, taking shots at Brian Kelly. It's for the way he went about his business otherwise. And I, you know, Brian Kelly just was, he's such a polarizing figure, even within Notre Dame. What he was good at, I think, was recruiting coaches. Because if he didn't have Freeman, if he had left the cupboards without Freeman, where would Notre Dame have gone or turned? Freeman, I think, was a part of the success already building behind the scenes with his recruiting and his defense. I think that, you know, we almost take for granted that at Notre Dame because Freeman was a huge reason why the transition went is going as well. And I haven't played a game yet. But yeah. the, everything looks rosy. Rosier, their recruiting class is rated higher than any of them ever were with Kelly at the helm. So I think that him bringing in Freeman, we're going to see what happens. But, man, it's almost like I think that Notre Dame got as far as they could possibly go, and now they have an optimistic future to maybe go further. I do. And, you know, I, I was skeptical yeah, a few true. years back that, you know, like that, you know, can they really do better, you know, than, than, than what they've got? You know, he sure is winning a lot more than anybody else has won, but I mean, all it's taken is these last few months seeing the way Marcus Freeman has recruited. And it's, you know, again, you're going from a coach who's been a head coach for 30 years to a guy who's never been a head coach before. There's going to be some growing pains that, that come with that. And, you know, Marcus Freeman said after the Fiesta Bowl that, you know, the honeymoon is over. We're, you know, we're going to find out pretty soon just, you know, exactly what phase of this relationship we're all in with Marcus Freeman when it comes to Saturdays, you know, so that that's 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 the biggest that's really the biggest question that he has to answer is how he handles all those decisions that Brian Kelly could, for the most part, navigate, you know, like all that experience that Brian Kelly had, it had, you know, it, it won him some extra games here and there. You know? And Brian Kelly, I mean, we, we could talk about Brian Kelly in this for next five hours, but Brian Kelly had other head coaches on his staff that always helped. What's helping with Freeman, I think, just the perception. The honeymoon might have been over after losing that Fiesta Bowl, but I think that he bought himself a longer honeymoon by relying more on the Notre Dame family. You know, he doesn't have head coaching experience, but he wants to be a Notre Dame man. He wants to go back to some of the traditions that Notre Dame used to have before Kelly that he yeah. doesn't understand why they stopped. So yeah. I think that um, Freeman's given himself a little bit more of a honeymoon, and he's relying on the right people in terms of building the Notre Dame brand, being a Notre Dame man in the Notre Dame program. Now here's, you know, here's something salty Virginia peanut says, agree, Bobby. I don't give Kelly much credit at all beyond keeping a coaching staff with elite elements, but also failures 
he would keep until forced to fire them. You know, so that's the other <laughs> side. Well, yeah, Brian Van Gorder, uh, you know, basically, you know, purged that staff after 2016. And it was coming to a situation with Quinn and Alexander, you know, had he not, you know, taken this job at LSU, what was he going to do with those guys? Because, you know, it didn't take Marcus Freeman very long to figure out who he wanted to keep on his staff. And Quinn and Alexander weren't going to be two of them, you know, and those were guys, you know, like with these last couple years where, you know, we're, we're, we're ripping this offensive line and, you know, why aren't they performing better? You know, and all this, you know, Jeff Quinn was in a gots to go situation. And like, when you hear, you know, like recruits talk about Chancey Stuckey compared to Dell Alexander. And again, it comes down to these relationships that we're talking about in recruiting. There is just a huge difference. Harry Heastan was never coming back if Brian Kelly was still the head coach, you know, so that's, that's part of it too. And, you know, so there is, you know, there, you know, he's, he's made some good hires along the line, but he's also, you know, stuck to his guns with too much loyalty at times as well and and kept guys on who probably didn't deserve to be on the staff like those guys. Yeah, and just to put a bow on it, because everything that comes up, Kelly, you start to get you, you can feel your blood boiling a little bit, just just as a nasty feeling. But look at the positive vibe of the program. Look at their trajectory. Look at everything that's going well for them. Um, there's nobody around the program that says anything negative, whereas before people might not have said negative things, but they were quiet. And now you're just hearing all the positivity and and it's just going in such a good direction that I think people used to cheer against Kelly because Notre Dame's already polarizing enough, whereas some of those tweener fans, they'll be cheering for Freeman because of how positive he is and how much he he puts himself out there in a good, positive way. <laughs> I concur. I concur, man. We have ripped through a lot of different topics tonight. I want to get this one before we wrap up. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. You know, we go, we usually try to keep it to around an hour. We don't have like a set timeline, but, you know, we've had a lot of good stuff, I, I you know, that we've been talking about tonight. As long as they're commenting, we'll keep going. <laughs> this one, yeah, that's right. This there, There's a, a non-Notre Dame question that we'll kind of finish up with tonight. It's going to relate, you know, to Notre Dame, but it's not a Notre Dame-specific question. The NCAA's Division I Council is recommending that the NCAA get rid of the one-time part of its transfer rule. So like right now, if you're a transfer, you get one time and you can go and, you know, the first transfer, you can go play right away. But if you transfer again, that after that second time, you would have to sit out for a year before you're eligible to play. So 
The Division I Council is recommending getting rid of that one-time part of the transfer rule so that any player would be able to transfer and have immediate eligibility. So you could theoretically tra- you know, start your career at Notre Dame, transfer to Michigan, play right away, transfer to Indiana, play right away, and then transfer to Louisville and play right away. You could play theoretically at four schools in four years and never have to sit out for any of it. So what do you think of that, Bobby? I don't like it. I think what you're going to get with that is almost you're going to lose the high school recruiting. You're just going to be recruiting freshmen and sophomores every year, even if they've already moved once. Yeah. I don't – it's already out of hand almost how you can build your program with a rental, you know, for a year. I don't think that – because, you know, you get to these programs where they're only missing one piece. You're going to have a guy that would win four national championships in four years at four different programs. And I think this Jordan Addison thing from Pittsburgh to USC, I mean, that is nothing – like Jeremy, we, you know, we just got a comment. This is free agency, and that's exactly yeah. what I was thinking. You know, like Lane Kiffin, we, you know, was talking at SEC Media Days this week about, you know, essentially it's it's like you're putting together a, uh, you know, it's like roster management basically. You've got a salary cap, or you know, that that you've got, you know, talking about payrolls and that that's that's essentially what it's going to be. Like yeah. when you mix in, like with. With NIL being introduced, they needed to go the other way. Like to me, and I think I think Brian and I have talked about this before, I felt like they needed to go the other way and reinstitute the, the you need to sit out for a year before you're eligible to play because of NIL and the fact that you know schools could use it as an inducement, just like with Jordan Addison to get him from Pittsburgh to USC. So instead instead of actually putting some restraint in the process, now you're just going to open it up and say, ah, just go ahead. You can transfer as many times as you want and just keep on playing. When you had that topic, I thought that, that was a typo because I was like, there's no way they would deregulate it even more to let them go wherever, whenever. Well, at one point, do they just transfer in the middle of the season and play the next week at another program yeah. at this point? I, I like the idea of them sitting out a year Unless I feel like there should be a caveat that if a coach leaves, there should be open to leave a program. Right. Because that's kind of not fair to a guy who might be a good throwing quarterback and they bring in an option coach. And it's like, well, I'm stuck here now. But I think there needs to be a year out anyway, I, unless there's extremely crazy circumstances. But just to let it be a free market out there, why would you recruit any high school players? If you're a true freshman, if you're not starting your first year, you're going to transfer somewhere else anyway. Yeah, and be re-recruited, off. and the yeah. recruiting will never stop. So I think there needs to be some sort of tie to the player and the program. It feels like Notre Dame is in a little bit better place than a lot of these other schools because of the fact, you know, where they are with the academics and stuff like that. You know, again, that 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 doesn't mean you know make them like exempt from it, like it's never going to happen at Notre Dame. But it feels like because you have guys who are signing up. You know, for the academics, they know what they're getting into and all these different things that that maybe, you know, because of the uniqueness of a place like Notre Dame, that that maybe they might not be affected as much. But at the same time, it's just a, a whole different can of worms. And I can't believe they're opening it up like they're considering it hasn't been approved yet, but they're considering opening it up like this. And, you know, and like we keep hearing right. like. Well, you know, is the Power Five going to break away? And, you know, all this talk with, you know, all the conference realignment. And, you know, is it, you know, do the football, you know, programs just need to break away from the NCAA? Well, the problem with that is you still need some kind of oversight. You still need some kind of governing body to make rules 
like this. You know, you can't just pull away and say now all our problems are solved because someone still has to put rules in place, you know, to, you know, whether it's the NCAA or anybody else. It's just that the NCAA keeps making horrible decision after horrible decision. So it's like, who has confidence in the NCAA at all right now? I don't think you'd find many shows of hands. You you almost hope that they're like, yeah, it's been pressured for them to bring it up. And they'll say like, yeah, we're going to bring it up and talk about it and then never pass it. That's kind of what you're hoping for. But like you said, they've gone down the road of wrong decisions so many times. Each time they make a good decision, they make two bad ones, it seems like. So I think you're looking at a situation where they're going to, they can't. There's no way they can just let anybody free. Like I say, how how do you fix it? You, I say you go, like Sean said, you go back to a one year you have to sit out. Because without this one year sitting out, they're going to transfer half, like uh, who was it from Clemson, their quarterback a few years ago that transferred in the middle of the season. And he didn't play right. his next place. Right. Uh, Kelly was his last name, I think. Yeah. Or something. It, the guy it, that got overtaken by Trevor Lawrence, basically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so you, you just you need to have some sort of tie to keep them at the program. Otherwise, recruiting as a whole will, will collapse because then you're going to have the MAC recruit high school and then the big programs will recruit from the MAC. And then every year it's just going to be a feeder system within itself. And you're the only way you there. fix it, Kelly Bryant, Kelly Bryant. thank you. <laughs> I think um, I think you just have to make them sit out or have some sort of penalty or only allow so many scholarships to a program. And if you offer that scholarship to a program, you have to honor that spot for three years, even if the guy transfers. I don't know if that'll help anything, but they won't be able to take in as many scholarship athletes. I don't know if that's if that would work, but it's something. There has to be some way to not just make it a free market. Tyler, it was it was Kelly Bryant, not Bryant Kelly. You were right the first time. It's like Bobby had the first name right, and I couldn't remember the last name. But a lot of Kelly in this episode. That's right. That's very true. That's very true. Tyler with the assist. So, yeah, I just it's 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 a bad situation. I have no idea what would spur the NCAA to think this is a good idea because again, they already totally whiffed on NIL and you know the the anniversary of. NIL, you know, we just hit the one-year anniversary of the adoption of NIL. It's a total train wreck, and doing this only makes it even worse. Like they couldn't figure out, you know, how to how to properly manage NIL because they didn't want NIL, and the states ended up pushing it through to begin with. And so now you've got NIL, and it's you know we 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 just saw how it impacts things like transfers and you know players being lured away. So the fact that they would look at that and have that in front of them just a couple months back, like with the Jordan Addison thing specifically, they'd have that as an example right in front of them. And now they say, oh, by the way, you know, we're, we're just going to open it up and and, you, and it's not just going to be a one-time transfer rule. It's just open transfer. It just makes no sense that they would decide to go that direction. And who knows what anything is because the his, the the history, the future of college football is going to be so different with the conferences jumping and realignment and these TV deals. I almost wonder if they're just trying to leave themselves an out so that if a guy's already transferred, he can transfer again if his school goes from a major conference to a non-major conference or leaves the NCAA. I, I just almost feel like they're leaving themselves loopholes, but while doing so, they're ruining recruiting and ruining the game. Yep. All right, well, we will go ahead and uh, end it on that for tonight. A lot of great stuff. Appreciate uh, all the uh, all the enthusiasm in the YouTube chat tonight. Had a lot of great input going on 
there and uh, a lot of great discussion tonight as well on a lot of different topics. I hope we got someplace. <laughs> we got somewhere. If the not, we can just transfer. The next time we talk, Bobby, uh, which will be two weeks from today, or at least on the show anyway, will be just a little bit more than one week away from the start of training camp. So we've got that Crazy. going for us. Yeah. By then, the White Sox will be up in first place. <laughs> you can always dream, right? We all can. <laughs> all right. Have a great weekend. Have a uh, a great week. I'll be again. I'll be gone next week. Vince is going to be, I think, doing most of the hosting next week. I believe Bobby and Jesse and Brian, you know, maybe Ryan. I don't know. Will uh, be contributing to some extent, and then I'll, I'll try not to get too sunburned and uh, be I'm back. <laughs> That's right. Be back the week of August first, getting ready for the first day of training camp for Notre Dame on August fifth. Looking forward to that. Don't forget. Hit that like button, subscribe, rate, review, all that great stuff. You help us out. Bobby, I will talk to you later and uh, talk to you uh, all later very soon as well. Again, have a great weekend. Talk to you in a couple weeks. And uh, don't forget, IB Sports, IB Nation Sports Talk will be back next week still. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.